We're taking a break this morning from our Counterchism series and uh, have a special Earth Day sermon. So with that in mind, please turn uh, the next page of your bulletin and let's hear the word of God for us today. Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship service. My name is Gene. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And as you heard, this past Thursday was Earth Day. And this is the first year that we as a church have focused on Earth Day. And I think our people did a fantastic job in terms of raising awareness for environmental conservation. Some, some really simple, practical ways that we can make a positive impact on our world. Our makeshift Earth Committee, they took over noontime prayer this past week, and I learned from Albert about the history of Earth Day. I learned what it means to be a good steward, steward from Higyang and from Kathy Choi, I learned why I should adopt a more plant-based diet. And I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> On Instagram, we played environmental bingo. And I learned how to compost from Jeannie Park. I learned a lot this week because I actually paid attention. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's not something that I've really done in the past. You see, I filed away environmental issues in that cabinet in the corner of my brain where I categorized other important issues, but that aren't really immediate to me. I'll do what I can as long as the cost is minimal, and I do mean minimal. I'll recycle cans and bottles, sure. Paperless billing, sign me up. I won't start forest fires if I can help it. And I do have reusable bags to take with me to Trader Joe's, but there have been times, many times, where I've forgotten to take them, and I've left the house, and I've remembered, oh, I do have those reusable bags. 
And I, I kind of have a little huddle obsession for about a split second. How tender is my conscience right now? I do somewhat of a cost-benefit analysis. How much of a difference is this really going to make? And then I just leave. Clearly, you can see how important conservation was to me. How many times walking in New York City did I see Greenpeace volunteers ahead asking for petition signatures, and then I viewed them like the priest and the Levite viewed the Good Samaritan? Other side of the road for me. It gets worse. As long as I'm confessing, I'm going to go all the way. In my 20s, I was a careless youth. <laughs> I actually got cited once for littering. And one of the more interesting days of my life was spent with other people consigned to community service wearing bright neon vests on the side of the highway picking up trash. I know, I'm terrible. So knowing that I had to preach an Earth Day sermon, this week I listened, I learned, I repented. And one thing I realized was that it, it, it's not just me. By and large, protecting, preserving the environment is something that the church has sorely overlooked. I researched Christian blogs, books, articles, sermons, and talks, and I'll tell you, there really isn't much out there. So what I want to do today is not to look at how we can be good stewards. I'm not going to talk about specific habits that we can adopt, like composting or boycotting single-use plastics. I'm not going to talk about policies, like the Paris Agreement or the Green New Deal. I want to focus today on the why. Why should I care about our planet more than I do? Why should Christians be the best and most passionate stewards of the environment rather than the least concerned about it? Our passage today is from, I think, my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, Romans 8. In our verses that we'll focus on, Paul talks specifically about creation. And he points us to creation in the past, in the present, and in the future. And we see in these verses the, the very framework of the entire narrative of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation from Genesis to Revelation. So I want to highlight three things for us today. Creation, decreation, and recreation or renewed creation. First creation. Look with me at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Paul says that creation was subjected to futility and now it's in bondage to corruption. At some point, something happened where creation became subject to futility. That word for futility in the Greek, it, ref it refers to frustration or emptiness. What it means is it was good, 
and then it became corrupted. It was full, and then it became empty. It was progressing, growing, moving, and then that growth was frustrated. So before we jump into what the world looks like now, with all of its brokenness and damage, it's so important to, for us to see the world as it was created by God in the beginning. What was this world meant to be? What was the purpose and design for environmental flourishing? Well, in Genesis 1, we see the song of creation. It begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. I want to talk about the heavens for a moment to get a glimpse of who the creator is. You know, we can't begin to comprehend the immensity, the, the, the sheer vastness of our known universe. Did you know that scientists estimate that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on our seashores? You know, my wife is, is homeschooling our, our sons, and they just went through a space unit, and they loved it. So it's somewhat fresh in my mind, so I want to talk about it a little bit. But let's hold off on all the stars, and let's start with just one, the sun. Let's take a look at our solar system. And if I were to scale our solar system down a bit, David Whelan, a, a physics professor at Austin College, he did this exercise. Imagine that our sun is the size of a basketball that I'm holding. So pretend I'm holding a basketball in my hand, and that is the sun. And if this is the sun, then Mercury's distance from the sun, scaled down, would be about the second row. Venus would be about the back row. And Earth, the third planet from the sun, 94 million miles away, it would be about 30 yards or way out into the foyer. And the Earth would be about the size of a nerd candy or a sprinkle on an ice cream cone. The largest planet in our solar system, Jupiter, compared to the basketball sun, it would be about the size of a small marble. And it would be all the way in Penn Station. Saturn is twice as far away as Jupiter. So think about courtside at Madison Square Garden. And on this scale, Neptune, the furthest planet, <clears throat> would be about five city blocks away. So within a one-mile diameter of the sun, there's a basketball, a couple of marbles, and then some, some things that are too small to even notice. And then there's nothing else. Nothing. Think about how much space there is. Talk about social distancing. The end of our solar system would be about two miles away from the sun. So think Central Park. One star, eight planets, some dwarf planets, and that's it. But did you know that the closest star to our sun 
is a star called Proxima Centauri. And Proxima Centauri, compared to the sun, the basketball, it would be about the size of a ping pong ball because not all stars are the same size. And do you know on our scale where it would be? Okay, so if the basketball is here, where do you think that the nearest, sun, uh, nearest star would be? New Jersey? Pennsylvania? Maine? 4.2 light years away, it would shrink down to about 4,300 miles. It would be in Rome, Italy. And between the sun and Proxima Centauri, 4.2 light years away, there is nothing. Nothing, just black space. Well, did you know that in our Milky Way galaxy, there are 100 billion stars just in our galaxy? 100 billion stars. We can't even comprehend a number as big as 100 billion. Imagine 100 billion basketballs separated by 4,300 miles. That's the size of the Milky Way galaxy. Well, how many galaxies are there? Astronomers estimate that there are two trillion galaxies in our known universe. Two trillion galaxies. And Psalm 8 tells us that God created the galaxies with his fingers. His fingers, not his mighty arms, not his broad shoulders, his fingers. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we opened up our service today with Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Billions and billions and billions of stars. And this tiny speck of dust, of rock, that we call Earth, according to the Bible, is God's pièce de résistance. It is his magnum opus. It is his masterpiece. In Genesis 1, it begins with an Earth that is formless and void. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters, and God creates the heavens and the earth through his word. We see Father, Spirit, and Son, the triune God, creating this world out of nothing. He brings chaos to order, nothing to something, disparate to unified. Every part, every realm of the six days of creation, sky, sea, Land have their counterparts. Birds, fish, animals. There's incredible balance here. There's precision. And as he is creating the world, God can't help himself. He can't help but to stop and admire his handiwork. Again and again, we see in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. That word for good in the Hebrew, tov, it means beautiful. God creates 
and he admires the beauty of his, of his creation. And the last thing that God creates is man and woman. And he blesses them, and he commands them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. We hear words like subdue and have dominion, and we think of oppression. But that's not what God is talking about. He's not saying in an oppressive or an exploitative way. He's saying, take care of it. Preserve it. Cause it to flourish. Enjoy it. And on that last day, God, he, he, he forms man out of dust and he breathes life into him. And do you know what God does as soon as he breathes life into Adam? The first thing he does, Genesis 2.8, and the Lord God planted a garden in the east and he put in there the man whom he had formed. For some reason in my mind, I always thought that God created Eden first and he created Adam in the garden, but that's not what happens. He creates Adam first and he tells him, Adam, hang on a second. I wonder if Adam watched as God planted the garden. And then God goes and he plants this beautiful garden paradise for Adam. And he places Adam in the garden to work it, to take care of it, to love it. Eden was to be a garden temple where God himself would live with man. The God of the universe, he could have chosen any place in the universe to dwell. But where does God choose? Not a fancy penthouse apartment by Central Park, but in the Garden of Eden, filled with trees, fruit, animals, and people. God creates masterfully, and he appreciates his own handiwork. Beautiful. And he designs it specifically for mankind to care for and enjoy. So why should we care about this planet? Why should we fight to protect the environment? Why should we protect wildlife, preserve resources? Because God loves it. God loves it. He lovingly and masterfully made it for us. You know, my two older sons, they are at this stage obsessed with Lego. And they're getting really good at creating and building things on their own. Hours are spent searching for the right pieces in, in, in an ocean of pieces, separating, joining, trying different things, imagining new worlds. And this is how I think of God when I think of God creating the earth. And when they're done, my kids, they, they bring me what they made and they say, look, I made this for you. Now, I could respond in one of several ways. I could be an uninterested parent. Okay, nice. And then go right back to my phone. I could be a critical father. Buddy, that's like a B minus. Why don't you go work on that a little bit more? Or I could be a proud parent. Oh my goodness. That is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I'm going to take a picture of this and I'm going to show all my friends. 
That's the best one. But imagine, I responded to my little Caleb who's four years old, and he says, look, I made this for you. What if I took it and I smashed it on the ground? What would that do to him? When we look at this world that God has made for us, and we participate in its destruction, or we are silent as it is ruined, what does this say about our relationship to the God who lovingly made it for us? Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't only mankind that, was, that fell and was cursed, but the earth itself. God cursed the ground. Creation itself is subjected to futility. It's now in bondage to corruption. We cannot view sin as just individual transactions. And we understand this, don't we? Our sins don't just affect us, but they also affect our families, they, they affect our friends, they affect our church community. But what these verses tell us is that sin also affects the created world. God designed creation so that man is inextricably linked to creation. God could have made Adam from anything. But what does he make him with? The dust of the earth. We are tethered to creation so that what hurts us hurts creation. What hurts creation hurts us. In fact, there's a specific pattern that we see throughout the Bible. In the book of Exodus, we see the ten plagues of judgment that God unleashes upon the Egyptian empire. And it's interesting that if God were just trying to make a point, if he were just trying to say, hey, I'm God, stop messing with my people, quit it, he could have just showed up. He could have turned Pharaoh into an elephant and killed him. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he sends a series of ecological disasters upon Egypt. And while these plagues are supernatural, strangely enough, they are so very natural. All of the bodies of water in Egypt are turned to blood, making that water undrinkable, unusable. Then frogs emerge en masse from the waters, and then they die. And their decomposing corpses are everywhere. And as you would expect, this is followed by gnats and then flies, a natural consequence of the frogs. Then the livestock die, followed by people getting sick with diseases. In some of these plagues, months pass in between them. What's going on here? Well, first, the, the plagues are a targeted attack against the gods of Egypt, yes. But we also see woven through these plagues is the sin of man, a refusal to repent. The point here is that sin is, in effect, decreation. 
the consequences of sin are that the creation order is reversed. Hear what Brian Chappell says. All the Egyptian pools of water turned to blood. It's the same Hebrew word that Moses used for God pooling the waters of the earth to form oceans in the very first stage of creation. Then the frogs come out. And these represent the living things that creep upon the earth. After the frogs, there are the insects, the gnats. Those things that creep upon the earth move into every flying thing as the flies themselves are identified. The livestock are next affected as the land creatures. The crops are next affected by the hail as the crops themselves and all the vegetation grew upon the earth. Then the darkness comes upon the earth as sin itself in all of its shadow begins to affect the earth and then the curse of death itself being realized in the spiritual consequences of sin. The progress of the plagues is the reverse of creation. Your sin leads to the undoing of your world. It is decreation. The God who means to bring about the goodness of the earth and the goodness of your life, he says, that does not happen when you walk away from me and my hand. Here is the creation order disturbed, corrupted, reversed with all of the consequent effects upon your life. Sin is not just a little infraction. It is the entire creation order itself being disrupted. And we see this same pattern, not just in Exodus, the very beginning of the Bible, but we see it in Revelation 16 at the very end, in the tribulations that come before final judgment. It's the same thing. Revelation 16:1, a loud voice telling the seven angels, go and pour out the wrath of God upon the earth. It's water image. It begins again. Verse 2, And painful sores came upon the people which bore the mark of the beast. Verse 3, The sea became blood, and every living creature in it died. Verse 4, The sun scorched the people so they could not stand, and they cursed God because of the plagues that it came upon them. Verses 8 and 9, The throne of the beast and its kingdom were thrown into darkness, The people gnawed their tongues in anguish. They cursed the God of heaven, but they hardened their hearts and did not repent. Again, we see the creation order disrupted and reversed. Decreation because of humanity's sin. And this describes our world today. We are living in these end times, the last days before final judgment. The wrath of God is being poured out upon the earth. In our passage, Paul writes that we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The earth groans because it has been subject to futility and the bondage of corruption. We see the same things we see in Revelation 16. We see disease upon the earth in the forms of global pandemics. COVID-19, cancer, AIDS, and on and on. The sun is scorching our people via climate change and global warming. The world is spiraling into darkness because of sin, and yet the people refuse to repent and harden their hearts just like Pharaoh did in Exodus. All the earth groans. But here's the good news. 
Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God subjected creation to futility, and, but he did so in hope and the intention of setting creation free. Christianity is not merely a religion of mankind's salvation. If sin is decreation, then salvation is recreation or renewed creation. It's no accident that upon the cross, Jesus is subjected to absolute futility. The same elements are present. Jesus on the cross, he cries out, I thirst because there's no water for him to drink. Upon the cross, there's a supernatural darkness of judgment that descends upon the land for three hours. And Jesus, the second Adam, he is killed. The firstborn is killed in judgment, not for his sin, but for ours. Jesus is decreated on the cross so that he might usher in renewed creation. He died to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, to set us free from sin and death, but also to set creation itself free from its bondage to corruption. And the way that the story ends, <clears throat> it's not that we all go to heaven as disembodied souls. You know, Eastern religions and even Western philosophy like Plato, they all agreed that the spiritual is the highest good and the body is less good. It, in fact, they say the body's a cage from which we need to escape. But we, Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And in the end, we don't all go to heaven but heaven descends to earth. The Old and the New Testament writers, they prophecy of a new heavens and a new earth. Christianity claims that this world will be restored and renewed. Jesus declares in Revelation, Behold, I am and making all things new. He promises to fix everything that's broken, to restore our relationship to him and the world. So what this means is that we Christians, we should have a much greater hope than secular environmentalists. We have a much fuller vision of environmental flourishing. You know, our hope, it's not sustainability. It's much greater. It's a new creation. And the new creation, it's even better than the original creation. In the end, we don't all just rip off our clothes and run naked back into the garden. The garden has been renovated with all of the finest upgrades. The vision in Revelation is of a garden city the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. You know what's better than being naked and unashamed? You know, Adam and Eve, they were neutral in the garden. 
Sure, they were sinless, but they were not righteous according to the law. In the heavenly city, we're not naked, but we're dressed in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. New, recreated, resurrected, glorified bodies that are dressed to the nines by Jesus himself. And until that hope is realized, the church, we are called to embody what a transformed community looks like. Jesus says that we are, if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We are called to steward God's creation with far greater reverence and care than those who don't know Jesus. We're called to demonstrate justice and peace and preview to this world what renewed creation looks like. And we don't despair when we see trials and tribulations, when we see ecological disasters, because we know that God is a much more passionate conservationist than Al Gore, Isha Clark, or Greta Thunberg. He is much more invested in this groaning earth than we are. And although the earth still groans, when we look at nature, we see that it still redounds with praise and hope. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He comes to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray together.